Hello, and welcome to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. I am Brooke Gilman, an active member of Women in Securities Finance and a Boston chapter lead. As well, I am a managing director and head of client relationship management globally at ESEC Lending. Women in Securities Finance is thrilled to bring this latest live podcast to our listeners, which was recorded in early May during IMN's 25th Annual Beneficial Owners International Securities Finance and Collateral Management Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Women in Securities Finance was fortunate to have my good friend Morgan Hillenbrand join us for the event as our guest speaker. Morgan is a behavior change expert, and today you will hear our conversation where she spoke to us about methods for advancing gender equality in the finance sector and her experience working to advance women around the world. Morgan has worked in the international development arena for the past 18 years on a range of difficult issues and for high-profile USAID programs, including the Afghanistan Promote program, which was the largest investment in women in U.S. history. She also worked for the USAID Land and Rural Development Program, having moved her family to Bogota, Colombia to support that program, which was a key piece of the Havana Peace Accords. Morgan now works with a team that uses data-driven approaches to advance gender equality in male-dominated industries worldwide. For those of you that weren't able to be with us at IMN in Scottsdale, we're excited to bring you this conversation and hope you enjoy. When I was asked by the Women in Securities Finance team to find an expert to talk to all of us about gender equality. And they said, well, we want data, we want research, we want, you know, is there anyone like an ENY or a Deloitte or something that we might be able to find? I sort of was having a conversation and realized that my friend might be the best solution for us today. So I thought it would be an interesting conversation and welcome Morgan, thanks for making the trip. Thank you so much. It's fun having our professional world collide. Yes. Um, we are friends and spend time together on the personal side. So this is a this is a new venue for us. Yes. Yes. Um, it's not the kitchen table or yeah. the backyard. Yeah. But it's an, a different table. It's an important table. And so when we heard that you all wanted to start your conference with this conversation, we were so just heartened and excited. And one of the aspects of the work that we do alongside coaching management teams in male-dominated sectors is helping to establish and bolster and elevate women's networks, women's professional networks worldwide. So just honored to have been asked by you all to be here and looking forward to the conversation. All right, so let's get right into it. So advancing women in the workplace is a pretty huge and loaded topic. And myself, others in the room might be uncomfortable at points in this conversation, and that's okay. We're okay to all be uncomfortable together. But how do we start thinking about this? How should we structure this conversation today? And where should we start? I think there's kind of three pillars that we can think about as we move forward in the conversation today. So I think the first important thing is to understand what is the status of women in the finance industry? What does the research say and what is the data telling us? The next is like the so what piece. Like why do we care to have more women in the finance industry? What is there a business case or a business benefit to these diversity initiatives. And that's, it's really important for teams, not just at the management level, but across the organization to understand the why. So that would be the second piece. And then the third piece is, you know, how do we do it? And there are many tactical things organizations can do that are really concrete to advance women in the workplace. Okay. So let's dive right in then. So 
Give us sort of the lay of the land. What is the status of women in the workplace in male-dominated industries generally? Well, we, we'll talk about the finance industry, and I can give you all some stats about what's going on with women in the finance sector. But before we do that, it's interesting to take a step back and look at what's going on with women before they start their professional careers. So what we know today is that 40% of the students that are enrolled in MBA programs today are women. And at some universities, this is even higher. The Wharton School of Business, Casey at Johns Hopkins, they have 50% women enrolled in their MBA programs. So in some top tier institutions, we're seeing parity and that's incredible. Right, so you would think that that means that there shouldn't be a problem. If you would good, think, we're good. you would think. But what we know is that this isn't translating to the workforce. So while we have pretty much gender parity in business school, we don't see that in business. So something is broken there. We know that only 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. We know that women hold only 10% of leadership positions at private equity and venture capital. We know that when we look at portfolio companies, only 20% of the leadership teams at portfolio companies have gender balance. So when I say gender balance, we're not even talking about 50-50. We're not talking about parity. We're talking about at least 30% of women on the board, on the management team, on the investment team are women. This next stat is the one that's the real gut punch. In 2017, they did a study that showed that women-led enterprises collected less than 3% of the total global venture capital worldwide. Right, and you know that it's not because women don't start businesses. I mean, I can't tell you how many in my personal life, how many more of my friends that are business owners are women versus men. Correct, I mean, yeah. There's all sorts of women in small business, like that's a thing. So, so there are, yeah, that is a real kind of mind-blowing statistic. And so there are tons of publicly available stats like this on each sector, including the finance industry. But then there's other research that's important that gives us more insight into the female experience in male-dominated industries more generally. So 40%, almost half of women, feel like their career is not advancing in the way that it should, or that they're not being given the career advancement opportunities that their male colleagues are receiving. 60% of women, most women, are experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace. And this is staggering, the 60%, but we also know that that's a low number because 93% of women don't report sexual harassment because they don't believe their employer will do anything about it and they believe their career will be negatively impacted. So that's interesting. And what's more interesting about that is the impact of sexual harassment in an organization has been quantified. So data, the research shows that when a team is affected by sexual harassment, they lose $25,000 per person in productivity on a team affected by sexual harassment. So it's not just the survivor that's being impacted, it's the entire team that's being sucked in at an emotional, mental level, and their productivity is taking a hit. So the key takeaway is it's rough out there. And we know that when women are also experiencing other intersectional factors, race, sexual orientation, age, ability, it's even more challenging. Okay. So that's all a little depressing. 
it's gonna get better, I promise, or hopefully. So the question then is, is how do we do this? Like, what are some tactical approaches that businesses can use to bring more women into male-dominated industries? Yeah, well, I've, I think that even though these are some like alarming and depressing figures, what's gonna allow us to turn that around is understanding what the business benefit is. Right, yeah, because we're all about, I mean, everything we do all day long is what's, what's the business case. Exactly. So make the business case for everyone. Yeah, so let me just say that when we go in in front of an audience like this or we start coaching a team, a management team, people tend to be afraid that we're going to come in and like hit them over the head with some self-righteous moral argument. This is a human rights issue. And don't get me wrong, it is. It is a problem that marginalized groups are not being given opportunities to advance. But that's not how we lead in the work that we do, and that's not how we want to frame the conversation today. So what we know, what the data and research tells us, is that organizations that have more female employees, that have more women on management teams, that have more women on the board, these companies are performing better. So how are they performing better? They have higher rates of retention. They have higher rates of employee satisfaction, which we know is correlated with productivity. It's a lot easier and more satisfying to work for a company that you love than a company in a culture that you hate. So gender balance is a motivating factor. It's interesting, Deloitte just this year put out research where they surveyed 5,000 women, and they put the women into two categories. Women who were at gender-balanced organizations, meaning 30% of the employees at that organization were women, and women who were not at gender-balanced organizations. And what they found was that only 9% of the women at organizations with gender balance said that they wanted to leave the company in the next two years, that, that part of their professional plan was to leave the company in the next two years. When they looked at the group of women working at organizations that did not have gender balance, 52% of those women stated that they planned to leave the organization in the next two years. 52%. I mean, think about the turnover yeah. costs no, associated like, with that recruiting, yeah. it um, time sourcing talent. It's a, it, yeah. it affects your bottom line. Yeah. So there's those types of indicators, but we can also bring it back to the finance sector specifically. So... The research shows that gender-balanced investment teams have more diversified deal sourcing. It shows that the internal rate of return for gender-balanced investment teams is 20% higher than investment teams that are male-dominated. And gender-balanced leadership teams are correlated with a 25% greater increase in valuation between funding rounds than unbalanced teams. So the numbers are there. The numbers are real. And I think if more leaders understood the research or developed the intellectual curiosity to ask themselves, what would happen to my revenue if I added more women to my investment team, if I put more women on my management team? I think it starts with that type of curiosity. If it's a, oh, yeah, we got to like do the right thing. Gender is a thing now. Diversity is a thing now. We got some quotas for getting women into the organization. We got to check these boxes that doesn't work and it can actually have a negative and opposite effect. And I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday where he was incredibly turned off by that sort of top-down mandate. And it really did more damage than good. Yeah. So, all right, that's all compelling data then. 
So now give us the game plan, give us the tactical steps, you know, what can organizations do to not have that top-down mandate approach? Like, how else can you approach it? Yeah, there are many tactical things organizations can do, and my team operates primarily at the organizational level. And what I mean by that is sometimes I work in situations and contexts in countries where we're really trying to impact the enabling environment for women more generally. So it's not just let's go into a company and change the game for women at the company, but looking at a systems level, looking at policy, and as well as individual factors. And so we bump up against all of these factors in our work, but we are primarily focused on change inside an organization. But as a part of that, we have to really look at the individual. And what I mean by that is, what is the situation with women and their partners? We know that women carry the greatest burden of household responsibilities. So in our work in organizations, we end up doing a lot of male engagement work that includes those types of topics. You know, how involved are you at home? Are you changing your kid's diaper? I mean, we get down sometimes into that level of granularity because it takes time away from a woman being able to focus on her career. And through that work, we can also demonstrate how the situation is also bad for men. The situation is not good for men. It's not good for men mentally or emotionally, and it's not good for men in households economically. So that's one piece of it. Our team takes an employee life cycle approach when we go into an organization and start working with a team to advance gender equality kind of across the board. And I also wanna say this is something that organizations are opting into and because it is a government funded and provided service, we're finding that people are like, okay, it can be expensive to bring DNI experts in as consultants, but we're saying we're funding this for you we want you to get on board and we want you to start contributing and allocating funds once you start to see some of the effects and once you buy in and the commitment starts growing, a key indicator for us in understanding whether we're, what our impact is, is have they started contributing their own resources to advance these programs. So we come in and we do an assessment of the organization and we look at the status of women at all levels of the organization. And then once we kind of understand the lay of the land, we provide sort of a list of targeted interventions. So what does your recruitment look like? How are you sourcing talent? Where are you sourcing talent from? What are your job descriptions look like? What majors are you limiting it to? And we find that once we start to broaden those aspects out, more women start putting their hat into the ring. We look at onboarding processes. We look at training opportunities. What does your succession planning look like? How are you grooming or not grooming women to be in the pipelines for succession? How are you promoting people? What does your performance management system look like? What does your performance evaluation look like? What kind of questions are you asking? And so we look at all of those things and then we make kind of recommendations from there along with this broader cultural change that needs to happen in an organization. Because as I said, this top-down approach and mandate pisses people off. Right. People men don't, and women. Men right. and women. Yeah. I mean, people don't want to do it, and defenses come up. So it's a softer, step-by-step -step approach of sensitizing the workforce. This is the goal and objective. Here is why we're doing it. This is the business case. 
we find that if we got more women into these different areas, the research shows that we could improve. We want to test that out. We would appreciate if you all got on board with that. So it's the tone at the top is so important. It's the business case. And then it's working uh, culturally with the team and supporting women and men with some of the personal factors that are also affecting their ability to thrive in the workforce. Okay, so then give us, again, going back to the business case, but give us then what have been some of those results? Like what positive impacts have you seen in industries that you've worked in and and at those companies? Yeah, so we have two kind of tracks that we run. One is a very intensive two-year coaching track where the executives that we're, we're working with also go through an executive leadership program at Georgetown University that we fund. And then along with that, they get two years of really hands-on coaching. And I cannot overemphasize the importance of the coaching. A lot of organizations decide to do it on their own. They kind of get the gist, they understand that it's important, and they think, oh, this is something our HR can handle. But it really takes an expert that understands the entire ecosystem and gets the whole lay of the land to bring the organization along step-by-step. So that's our kind of intensive program. And then we also have an accelerated track for organizations that are like, that sounds nice. We don't have a two-year timeline. We need to do this thing in six months, 10 months, 12 months. So that is another course that's sort of truncated as well as more like five to, to 10 months of coaching. And what we found, I can just give you the stats of the intensive program. This is this two-year coaching period. We've coached 40 organizations in 27 countries. And in the last two years alone, during a pandemic, when women were just bleeding from the workforce, and we know a third of women left finance in the last two years because of the pandemic. So in the last two years, our partners have hired 2,500 women into technical and leadership roles. These are new women coming into an organization. And then our partners have also promoted 2,600 women into technical and leadership roles. So 5,000 women in two years, it's a pretty impressive number, especially given the global circumstances that we've all been dealing with. And then we go back and we look at, okay, what have the business benefits of our partners been? Almost half of the companies we coach report increased retention. And many of our partners report decreases in revenue loss. And at least six link this explicitly to their gender equality work. And then five report that gender equality has improved their brand and reputation. And we know that once you improve your brand and reputation as an employer of choice for women, recruitment of women also goes up. So these are real sort of tangible benefits that we've seen in the last two years alone. Right. Good. Well, that's impressive, especially during a pandemic and a short period of time to have that sort of positive improvement to the stats. I know the answer, but I think our audience is going to be curious then about knowing more about yourself. Like, how have you in your own personal life, your professional career, what enabling factors have helped you get where you are today? And what advice do you offer for other women? Or like, what do you think are some of those key factors that help women thrive in their careers? Yeah. First, I just want to maybe take a step back and share that as a behavior change communication person, I've worked with teams all over the world on a range of really tough challenges, whether it's dealing with 
extreme poverty or post-conflict transitions, getting people access to water or land or ag inputs or dealing with climate change. These are all incredibly tough issues. And when you layer the dynamic of gender on top of all of those issues, across the board, it gets harder. And why? It is very difficult, especially in more traditional conservative contexts, to get women to the table. And not just get them to the table, but encourage them to speak and then have people really hear them, value their ideas, and include them as part of the solution. And what I've learned in my work with women around the world is that while we come from different cultural contexts and perhaps the stakes are different, for example, uh, you referenced the work in Afghanistan, that's a very difficult context to advance women. And we made a lot of really important gains that sadly have slid backwards since the US withdrawal last summer. But what I can say is that while the context is different and the stakes are different, the female experience around the world is the same. And the sameness, I think, can be encapsulated in this one sort of refrain, which is women are just not qualified. And that refrain, women are just not qualified, is heard by female farmers in Kenya, and it's heard by women that are joining a crew that are going out to fix power lines in Colombia, and it's heard by women in offices here in the United States. And I just want to give you a little snapshot I was going to say, give me of like actual yeah. anecdotes. So there was this great exercise that we did in Kenya where our objective was to increase women's access to land. And so as a part of that, we were working with community leaders. These are elders in the community, large landowners and farm owners. And we asked them, hey, what do you think about putting your wife on your land title? And these guys thought this was hilarious. They're like, put, put my wife on. She can't run this farm. Like, she, there's no way she can do this. And we're like, okay, well, we can't have that. We can't have your farm go to hell. So just tell us what your wife does during the day. And we take a, a white piece of paper and we put it up on the board. And these guys will tell you all about it. She wakes up. She gets the wood. She lights the fire. She makes the coffee. She gets the kids up. She sends the girls for water. She sends the boys to school. She makes the breakfast. She cleans up the breakfast. She goes to the farm. She's planting. She's harvesting. She's dealing with the animals. She comes back. She makes us lunch. She cleans up the lunch. She goes back out. She's working the land. She's harvesting. She's dealing with the animals and planting. She comes back. She does the dinner. She cleans it up. She gets the animals safe and like back into their pen so nothing happens to them. And then you know, we all go to bed. There's not a spot left on this white paper. I mean, it is full. And we're like, okay, great. We take it down. And then we ask, okay, now tell us about your day. And these guys look at each other. They're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, they know they're about to get nailed. They're like, well, we, uh, we wake up and we have our coffee. And then we walk around our land. We make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to. Then we uh, go to the market with a list from our wives. And we discuss matters of national importance. And then we come back. We make sure everyone's still doing their job. And we have a couple beers and go to bed. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so I think we can all agree that your wife knows how to run this farm. Right. And that if you were to die and she were to inherit this farm, this farm would sing. 
right? But it's this embedded feeling, regardless of what she's doing. She's just not qualified. We have the same experience. We work a lot with power companies and supporting organizations to hire more women to get on infrastructure crews. So we have you know, women that they're joining the crew and, and these male-dominated crews, they're like, she can't carry that equipment. She can't deal with that. It's hot out, it's 100 degrees. She's got this big suit on and she can't climb that pole and like, she can't make the electricity connect to that pole. These women like put on their suit, they like get in the bucket, they go up the thing. They're like, click. <laughs> right, lights. And um, we're like, what is this? So it's across the board, and when you ask me what are some of the factors that have enabled me to deal with this, and again, I'm often in the field with me and a bunch of local male staff and military. I mean, I, I myself have spent a lot of time in male-dominated arenas, and there are several factors that have allowed me to continue to push forward, and I do not believe these are unique to me, although some are. I was born and raised by a really loving family on the north side of Chicago. I was born into a wealthy family, and so that was a piece of privilege that I had that my female peers on the south side of Chicago did not have. My dad worked in the finance industry in Chicago. I had all the art lessons and the instruments, and I played all the sports, and he coached all my sports because he had a job that allowed him to leave a little bit early to do that. And so my life was mine to mess up. And that's important for people to understand that sometimes people, not everybody's born into that, and sometimes people need you to give them that extra chance or that extra leg up to level the playing field. I also, you know, my dad was my biggest cheerleader, and I think having my first experience with men be someone like that was incredibly motivating. And then the next piece is my husband. My husband is a full partner. I mean, I have a lot of friends who they have to do the mental labor to like make the list of what needs to happen in life and like their husband will work off that list. My husband like writes the list with me. He's not like a helper guy. So he'll be like, oh shit, it's teacher appreciation day tomorrow. Like we have to do a thing like we're in there together trying to cover all of the pots. And that has allowed me to do what I have to do in life. Right. I mean, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was really nervous because I was a road warrior in my career. I was constantly traveling, and I didn't know how having a baby was going to impact that. And I had my baby, and I was postpartum, and I have this newborn, and I have to go to Kosovo. And I'm so overwhelmed. I'm like, I'm nursing. How am I going to make this happen? Maybe I should bail out. And I know someone else is going to take that role if I don't do this. And he's like, no, I'm just going to, we're going to go. We're going to bring the baby. And he took time off of work, and he came with me and the baby to Kosovo, and he would walk the baby to the office so I could nurse and then bring her back to the hotel. And I think we should note that. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't want anyone in the room to think that, like, her husband doesn't work. He's a top executive and a founder of a really successful, you guys all know the, the company of a Silicon Valley startup. Like, he has a real big job. I mean, he's yeah. not sort of like, you know, spare time, what can I do today for you? He doesn't expect that we're going to sacrifice my career, that I'm going to have to do the majority of the labor, and I'm also going to do my career. Like, we he's are going out at 50-50. Yeah, 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 and we take turns. I mean, granted, there, are, there have been times where we can't 
both be going as fast as we might want to go. So when he took this position at Lyme, we moved out to the Bay Area, I slowed down because he would call me in the morning and be like, I am not coming home today. I'm getting on a flight to Miami. So if we were both doing that, we would die. But being able to be with someone where there's going to be an ebb and flow, and it's going to be your turn, and then it's going to be my turn, even though I make a lot less money than this man, he's like, we're not going to sacrifice you. In right. the pandemic, when things got really hard, and I was like, oh, my God, maybe I should just take some time off. He's like, no, we're not going to sacrifice you. We are going to both do the labor at home, and we're both going to keep and protect our careers. So that, I can't overstate the importance of that. And then there's professional aspects that matter. I was personally mentored by several male senior leaders in our organization and reported to the president of our organization who gave me a really long leash and allowed me to take opportunities that I hadn't always demonstrated that I had the experience and capacity to handle that. But he had the confidence, and that gave me the confidence to perform. Because you, you were just not qualified. Because I was just not qualified. Right. So it matters, that mentorship. And then the having your professional network, having your professional wolf pack. I have a group of women that I've worked with for over a decade in my organization. And when things get hard, when one of us are encountering something challenging, we help each other sort of weather the storm. And those professional networks are just incredibly valuable. So you know, what you all are doing with Women's Securities Finance Network is just incredibly important work, and I hope that it continues. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And I think, you know, just maybe concluding on that point, the experience of women in securities finance has changed my outlook, too. I, mean, I know a lot of women, I mean, I'm looking at you all, I know there's others out there that agree with this, that I have found, I didn't have a wolf pack before women in securities finance professionally. I didn't understand what that existed, that what it would do for me, just like the change of empowerment in my professional career. But beforehand, I mean, this is now 22 years in my making in this industry. And sadly, for the vast majority of that, I sort of felt like I was still on an island. I mean, I knew other people in the industry. I have great colleagues and coworkers and great clients as friends, but everyone else, all the rest of you, I was a little bit afraid of and did not feel comfortable walking into a room or a bar or whatever it was to network and sort of introduce myself and say, hey, how are you doing? And now I do because there's enough faces that now I know through this women in securities finance. And even, you know, I was speaking last night to one of the women in securities finance ladies that I've only just met in person yesterday, but we chatted last fall, and it was so much easier to get to know her because we knew we had that shared network and shared connection of support, and that's huge. So with that, I want to just thank Morgan for being willing to make this trip and to sort of venture with me into this conversation today with all of you. Thank you again to IMN. Thank you to S&P for supporting the networking breakfast this morning, and thank you very much for joining. <laughs>